Good morning, and welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin, Texas. My name is Susan Yarbrough, and I am the very lucky student intern minister in this dynamic and activist congregation. First Unitarian Universalist Church is a church of deeds, not creeds, and we're part of a liberal religious tradition that encourages the application of reason to faith and welcomes people from many traditions, including but but not limited to Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, and neo-paganism, and and atheism. We extend a special welcome to our visitors this morning. We're glad you're here. Part of our tradition holds that there is a divine spark in everyone, so in keeping with that tradition, please take a moment to turn to those around you and greet their spark with the warmth of your own spark. The flaming chalice is a symbol of our faith, and as we light it at the beginning of every worship service, we say together the words printed in your bulletin. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Our call to worship this morning is by Steve Goodyear, a United Methodist minister and author who teaches us with these words. Beware of this about callings. They may not lead us where we intended to go or even where we want to go. If we choose to follow, we may have to be willing to let go of the life we already planned and accept whatever is waiting for us. And if the calling is true, though we may not have gone where we intended, we will surely end up where we need to be. Come, let us worship together as a people of call and response. Every Unitarian Universalist church goes through a lengthy process of developing its own mission statement. We have written ours on the upper wall to your left, and we say it together every Sunday to remind each other of our communal purpose. Let's do that now. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Every week in our service, we have a time of quietness together, and each of us enters it into his or her or their own way. For me, it's with prayer, and for others, it's through meditative stillness or simply following our breath to a place of calmness. In every Hebrew school in the world, when the teacher takes role, each student responds with the word hineni, which means in Hebrew, here I am. Our reading today is from chapter 3 of the book of 1 Samuel in the Hebrew Scriptures, and it's about the calling of the very young boy Samuel, who had been dedicated to God's service by his parents and was living in the temple under the tutelage of the Israelite priest Eli. This is how the story is recounted in the contemporary English version of the Bible. Samuel served God by helping Eli, the elderly priest, who was by that time almost blind. In those days, God hardly ever spoke directly to people, and God did not appear to them in dreams very often. But one night, 
Eli the priest was asleep in his room, and Samuel was sleeping on a mat near the ark that held the sacred sacred scrolls in the temple. They had not been asleep very long when God called out Samuel's name. Hineni, Samuel answered, and he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, what do you want? But Eli answered, I didn't call you, go back to bed. God had not spoken to Samuel ever before, so Samuel did not recognize the voice that called his name twice more. The second time, Samuel again ran to Eli, who sent him back to bed. But the third time, when Samuel disturbed Eli's sleep, the old man finally realized that it was God who was speaking to Samuel. So he said, go back and lie down. If someone speaks to you again, answer, I'm listening. What do you want me to do? The fourth time God called Samuel, the boy said, I'm listening. What do you want me to do? Here ends the reading from one of our sources. Please join me in entering a time of quiet reflection. God of many names and of none, whose highest name and form is human love. Thank you for gathering the joys, the sorrows, and the prayers of the people today in the presence of a great cloud of witnesses. Remind us that we are each called to different kinds of work for the repair of the world, and that we are also called to each other to be together in a covenant of people who understand that we are part of one another, who love one another, and who delight in giving each other gifts of the Spirit. Give us this day listening ears that we may hear each other. Tune our hearts to the ways we are called and create in us a desire to respond to our calls with ministries of justice of hope, of mercy, of faith, and of peace. Thank you for the stillness of your voice. It calms us and it comforts us. Thank you for the smallness of your voice. It gives us space to listen and to hear. Most of all, thank you for calling us to co-create with you. Thank you for being here and for letting me be here. The way our conscious and unconscious minds work can often end up in pretty hilarious places, and I found that to be the case when I sit down to write a sermon. So here's what happened with this one. I was recently in a study group of four candidates for Unitarian Universalist Ministry who were scheduled for next March to see the Ministerial Fellowship Committee, the MFC. That's the credentialing body in Boston that decides in 90-minute individual interviews if each of us is suitable to be ordained or not. During the two-hour Zoom room study group, where the West Coast members appeared in pajamas and bathrobes uh, because it was still very early there, 
We set aside the second hour together for each person to ask a question, followed by each member giving a three-minute answer. Jessica began with, who are three 19th century Unitarians and three 19th century Universalists who have influenced your faith? This is a version of what is popularly known as the dinner party question that the MFC usually asks to test our knowledge of Unitarian Universalist history. So we all came up with various answers. David then asked us to respond to a question about policy-based governance, and Bill posed a question about social justice. When it was my turn, I asked, how did you experience your call to Unitarian Universalist ministry? Immediately, time limits on answers were suspended by consensus, and what followed were wonderful and heartfelt accounts of the yearnings and discernments that had gone into our being in the same virtual room together, seeking the same fulfillment of what each of us felt as an undeniable call to ministry. After the study group ended, I realized I needed to articulate the answer to my own question about calling in a more orderly way than I had answered it verbally, so I made a note to do some writing about it the next day. And here's where the hilarious part came in. That night after the study group, I dreamed about being in my East Texas grandmother's sitting room in the 1950s, watching a variety show with her on a black-and-white TV, where one of the performers was the singer Eddie Fisher. Now, I know I'm going to date myself here, as well as those of you who are laughing and nodding in recognition. In the dream, my grandmother said, "'You know, Susan, Eddie Fisher reminds me of Nelson Eddy.'" And with that, my grandmother began singing Indian Love Call from the old Jeanette McDonald Nelson Eddy 1936 movie, Rosemary. Now, I was not born when that movie came out, but believe me, I've watched it. In the movie, Jeanette McDonald and Nelson Eddy play an opera star and a, a Canadian Mountie who, who fall in love and sing a duet that begins when I'm calling you, ooh, 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 will you answer true, ooh, 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 ooh. Now, I'm not going to sing it for you now because that would hasten Armageddon, but, but the dream didn't end there. And in the next scene, a choir in my grandmother's small town, Southern Baptist Church, was singing the old hymn, Softly and Tenderly, Jesus is Calling, Calling, O Sinner, Come Home. The dream finally, thankfully, ended, but when I woke up, and, and for days after that, all I could think about was the concept of calling and how the dream seemed to be calling me to write about callings, but not about being a sinner. So, uh, that, yeah, it, I had, I've had a number of laughs about that. There's a common misconception that ministers are called and everyone else just has a job. As I thought about this widespread myth and about the truth that we are all called and we are all ministers, I began to think more deeply about the nature of our calls, the history of my own call, the great variety of channels through which our calls come to us, how we sharpen our senses to cut through the distractions of everyday life and hear those calls, and how we know if we're following our true callings. And even more questions began to arise, such as how do we recognize our calling? How do we distinguish a true call from a siren song? How do we handle our resistance to a call? 
what happens when we say yes or what happens when we say no. It's hard to know where to begin with all these questions, but it's been useful for me to think of callings as coming under two broad categories. A calling to do something, such as change careers or go back to school or have a child, and a calling to be something, such as more creative or less judgmental or more loving or more present. There are millions of permutations of each of these two kinds, to, to, to do something or to be something, and there are millions of hybridizations of both. And as a Mennonite pastor once reminded me, there are six and a half billion calls being formed at this very minute, one for each person on earth. Like fingerprints, she said, no, one of them is the same as any other. And even if some of them are similar, the response of each mind and heart and soul and body to its own call will be unique. The process of hearing a call, persistently testing its authenticity, and discovering its source is illustrated in our reading about the story of Samuel. I don't personally know any people who claim to have directly heard the voice of God, but I do know many people who have felt strongly called to parenting, grandparenting, hospitality to strangers, racial and sexual and economic and environmental justice, peacemaking, the healing professions, the work of plumbers and electricians and maintenance people, teaching, law, art, science, business, technology, music, writing, and simply facilitating and fostering human connections. Most of them can point to some time or some incident or some strong visceral feeling that this was what they were being called to do. And if they were then currently engaged in something else, they should take all steps necessary to respond to that call, even if it meant great sacrifice. I first felt the call to ministry when I was seven years old and witnessed my maternal grandmother take care of one of her older, take one of her older sisters into her home and lovingly care for her spiritually as the sister aged and died a painful death from rheumatoid arthritis. Watching my grandmother be present with Aunt Lou with such steadfast calm and soulfulness and prayer was like watching God in action. And I knew then that that was what I wanted to do when I grew up. This was in 1953. Three years later, when I was 10 and in the fifth grade, our homeroom teacher asked all of us to write two pages about what we wanted to be when we grew up. I wrote about how I wanted to be a minister and was promptly laughed out of school and home and church. Girls didn't do that. And they still didn't do that when I graduated from college in 1968. So I went to graduate school for three years and law school for another three and practiced law for 12 years and worked as a judge for 18 years. And before I knew it, it was 2005. I was 58 years old, retired, and immediately involving myself in lay ministry at a hospital and a hospice in Houston. I still felt called to ministry but I thought I was too old for any formal training in it. But early in 2013, 
I became friends with Dale, a man at my Houston church who was fading fast from cancer. We had many long conversations about his death and dying, and he entered hospice just a few days before I was to leave on a scheduled trip to New England to be restored in body and spirit by the cool air and the brilliant colors of fall foliage. I had never talked to Dale about my own desire to become a minister, but as I was saying goodbye to him and what I knew would be our last lucid conversation, he pulled me close and said, if you don't do something involving pastoral care, you are going to miss your calling. A week later, as I was winding up the New England trip with a visit to the UU congregation in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, and was leaving the meeting house with a woman I had just met, I pointed to the landscaping around the building and asked her, what is that bright red shrub that's holding its color all over New England, even while everything else is past peak? Burning bush, she said, and she hurried away. And it was then that I knew that Dale and my grandmother and nature and my own deep longing had spoken decisively to me about honoring a call I had heard six decades earlier and that the rest of my days on this earth would be holy ground on which I should remove my shoes and stand with awe and thanksgiving and purpose. I sat outside the meeting house in my rental car for about an hour and cried like a child over the beauty of many things and many people. When I returned to Houston, I applied to three seminaries, was accepted at them, and entered Meadville Lombard in September 2014 at the age of 67. The late Roman Catholic theologian Karl Rahner once said that what attracts you is the working of the divine. Callings can sometimes be so clear, such as an abiding mental picture of a beloved grandmother's tender care, or a phenomenon of nature, or direct words from a friend or a teacher, or even a child. But callings can also be shrouded in mystery and hard to discern, and that's probably a good time to look closely at what attracts us what interests us, and what we are passionate about. A few minutes ago, I raised the question about what happens when we say yes to a calling. My own answer is that it has given me the gifts of a sense of purpose, of what Buddhism calls right livelihood, and of what it means to feel aligned with something that is far greater than myself. And as for the question of what happens when we say no to a calling, I think we've all heard others, and maybe even ourselves, express that in sad and wistful words such as, I wish I had followed my, my gut and become an elementary school teacher, or I really wanted to go to med school, but, or I'm so bored with, or more succinctly, I can't believe I've spent 30 years in this wretched, thankless profession. I've heard all of these statements within the past month, and they reminded me of a sentence in Ron Heifetz's book on the practice of adaptive leadership, where he says, if you find that what you do each day seems to have no link to any higher purpose, you probably want to rethink what you're doing. 
or as corporate coach Jim Marsden has even more plaintively put it, sometimes the call is an awareness that seems to say, this isn't the life I'm meant to live. There's something more. I think it's important to acknowledge at this point that there are many hard realities that get in the way of answering calls. Realities such as inescapable family responsibilities or illness or lack of money or the always operative and intersecting evils of racism, sexism, heterosexism, classism, and ableism, to name just a few of the things that sociologists now refer to as wicked problems. I don't know how to solve them, but I think that Unitarian Universalism insists that we do what we can to help others and ourselves discern our callings and respond to them. This is part of our third principle of encouraging each other to spiritual growth, and it is also the imperative of being a moral and supportive thread in the interdependent web of creation. Taking the idea of calling a bit further, it's also important for us to consider our collective calling and to ask ourselves, what are we as a congregation called to do? Our stated mission is to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. And we're now preparing for a new fiscal year, which inevitably requires each of us to reevaluate not only our personal resources, but also our ideas about what church in general, and this church in particular, mean to us. And bound up with this, I think, is some kind of reevaluation of our collective calling, which we can only accomplish by listening to each other in community, sharing our callings, and thanking each other for the ways we have opened each other's ears and hearts to these calls. If we did this, I think we could find ourselves in the midst of a transformation where we began shifting our emphasis from the respect and dignity that each of our egos finds so satisfying to organizing our actions around what will create healthier social ecologies and stronger, more resilient relationships. In last week's online edition of On Being, Krista Tippett's very fine program on National Public Radio, singer-songwriter Joe Henry told an interviewer, we're really called not to dispel mystery, but to abide in it and engage it. And I can think of no better place to abide and engage in mystery than in Unitarian Universalism. Calling is a shared hallway into which all of us can walk. The door is wide, and it admits everyone who listens and responds to his or her or their call. As I get to the end of this sermon today, I thank you for the ways you as individuals and a congregation have tuned my ear to my call, have helped me hear it more clearly, and have kept my eyes on a bright red shrub that let me know in no uncertain terms that I am to number my days and learn new work. We are all called, and we are all ministers. And no matter what the outer expressions of our individual and ecclesiological calls might be, we are all most fundamentally summoned 
to the fullness of our humanity, to move toward that which is broken, to lay healing hands on it, to grieve for it and with it, and to love. May we listen for our individual calls. May we open our ears to each other's calls. And may we find our callings where the world's deep hunger meets our deep gladness. Amen. Our formal worship today is almost ended, and in celebration of our time together, we extinguish the chalice with the words printed in the order of service. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. And now may the grace of the Spirit continue to bless this listening congregation. May we know that we are all called and that we are all ministers. And may we hear and respond to the calls which summon us to that sacred place where the world's deep hunger meets our deep gladness. Amen. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.